Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Last Drinks Podcast, a new conversation about how to navigate an awesome life without alcohol, reframing the cultural norms around alcohol in our lives, and hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Tom Gosney's last drink was really dramatic and very memorable and all for the wrong reasons. It was a long, hard stint in rehab in a foreign country that became Tom's ticket to creating a life of sobriety. And by prioritising his sobriety outside of rehab, Tom has created a new normal in his social circles and designed a vehicle that has brought together community and companionship in a brand new way. Yes, I'm talking about pizza. Tom found a new purpose in designing pizza ovens Tom's story is really heavy, but he has some beautiful wisdom to share when it comes to what sobriety looks like for anyone who is scared to let go of alcohol. Enjoy Last Drinks with Tom Gosney. We will start our conversation, Tom, with your last drink. And I I hear it's a dramatic one. (laughs) So um, when I hit my rock bottom, I was living in England and I booked in to go to treatment in South Africa. And my poor mum, bless her, escorted me um, from England to SA. We flew into Johannesburg and then we had a connecting flight to Durban. And when we landed in Durban, we had the guys from the rehabilitation centre waiting for us. But I was so out of control towards the end of my using. And I think my the fear of going into treatment was incredible, like incredibly strong. And actually, I later found out in rehab that I'd sort of went off the rails on that journey over to SA because I was trying to, I was trying to essentially, um, essentially get myself arrested and sent back because I was scared of the notion of actually getting clean, like the fear of going into treatment and actually facing into, you know, my challenges head on was, was really real. So my last drink Mm. was, we landed in, we landed in Durban airport. We had the guys from the rehabilitation center. And I managed to like run off and find the duty free and open a bottle of vodka and drink half a bottle of vodka before they all found me. And uh, that was my last ditch attempt of, of holding on to a lifestyle of addiction. I suppose the addiction was strong within me. I've never shared that with anyone apart from my close friends and my family and my, my poor mum. And mum was broken. She was in bits. She was, Mm. she was sort of ready to hand me over. And then, to be honest, I don't remember any of it. I'd been drinking on the flight, the entire flight from England to, to SA. And mm. I was I was sort of out of control when I was drinking. So that was my last drink. That was on the 2nd of February, 2007. And it was a very sobering day, excuse the pun, to wake up the next morning in South Africa, not really remembering how I'd got there. Wow. And facing into the fact that there was no bar for the first time. It was, it was quite, a, quite a sobering, sobering day for me. Quite Tom, literally. You hear um, the term white knuckling used when people are abstaining from using, where they're like, I'm, it's like, 
I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. And it's like they're white knuckling because they're just like trying to hang on to the sobriety. And it feels like yours was the reverse effect that you were white knuckling your usage to the very last moment, you know, like you. And I find it so interesting how knowing you're going to a rehabilitation centre, there's that line in the sand that, you know, sobriety is coming for you reluctantly or not. And we still have to like do this thing to like, Mm. I don't know. It's just such in, it's such interesting and dramatic behavior that arises within us. It was just, you know, it was like completely fear-based. I think like the notion of going from everything that I knew that was my comfort zone, right. As, as much as it was like completely destructive for my life, like Mm. drinking and taking drugs was my bubble. It was my comfort. It took away the noise. It took away the shame, the guilt, all of that stuff for the moment that I was in it. Obviously it would exacerbate everything when you get that moment of sobriety and you realize you've done it all again and all of that stuff. But it just, it just quietened down all of the negative sentiments that I had around how messed up my life was at the time and so I think mm. literally it was like fear driven through fear and this sort of self-destructive behavior to try and derail the notion of going into treatment because the addict in me was so strong man it yeah. was like and that was part of the reason that I um when I decided when I sort of hit my rock bottom and I decided that I wanted to get help it's part of the reason that I went to South Africa yeah. was I sort of said to my my parents like I don't want to be local to my friends that are using in a rehab 20 miles down the road. Like I just, I need to get away from all of it. Otherwise Mm. it's just too risky for me to, to, to go through DTs and withdrawals and, and decide that, fuck, this is too hard, man. I'm, I'm, I'm hopping out of here, you know? So as much as it was painful getting me there, it was like the best thing that we ever decided to do. It was nothing. It's like a one-way street when I was there, man. Four walls, couldn't leave them, didn't have a passport, just get on with it, you know. That's it. And so I can imagine for you um, from using so much so often, those first few days, weeks would have been heavy physically for withdrawal Mm. and maybe the harrowing realisation of the way you had behaved people that have been hurt. And this happens, I think, in big addiction, but I think that this happens for people who don't necessarily have alcohol use disorder, but they just use alcohol a little bit too much and a little bit too often and they're just a bit of a dick to be around and people get hurt. Yeah. Even in those, you know what I mean? Like I don't want to maximise or minimise anyone's story um, by way of drama, but yours is a really big story and it sounds like it was a big addiction that had had overtaken your life management skills. And for you, the path was go to a rehab centre, lock yourself away in a different country until you could sort your stuff out. And I'm I'm guessing there you've got the help, you've got the counselling, you've got the doctors and the psychologists that you need to work through some of those issues. Yeah, I was super lucky to have all of that. And I was like really lucky to have parents um, that supported me and helped me get there. And so I'm eternally grateful for my folks for that. But, you know, addiction comes in so many forms. I've, I've helped so many friends of mine that, like you say, they, you know, to, to look at them, you wouldn't say, oh, they're an alcoholic, but alcohol negatively impacts so many areas of their lives. Yes. And, and they sort of, you know, the, the view that was shared in South Africa, and it's, it's so subjective to everybody's own 
different version of addiction and everything like that. But the view of the rehabilitation center that I went to was that if alcohol was negatively impacting your personal relationships, your social relationships, your career, your family life, you know, if it was negatively impacting that and you couldn't change those negative connotations because of alcohol, you had a problem that needed to be solved, right? Absolutely. and and you know it's really easy for i i feel i felt super blessed maz that i was such a destructive user you know one drink would go in me and it was like drink to oblivion drink to blackout use drugs it was so it was so um my 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 using was like so visceral right it was so it was so at the forefront it was so destructive and so it was really clear that i was really unwell and that right. was actually easy for me my my counselor Oliver, who's a amazing chap that um, helped me through a lot of treatment, he sort of said, "You're you're like one of the easy guys to fix, right? You're such a you're such an animal with it that it's wow. it's the guys that come in that have been going to work, you know, drinking like they they become like masters of hiding it, and it becomes so ingrained in their life, and they're yeah. conducting their lives right with alcohol. Those are the guys that it's really difficult because those." Those entrenched relationships with alcohol are harder to change if it's not as destructive as it was for me. So I feel pretty blessed, but um, you know, it, it can be so destructive even at even at relatively light levels. You know, Absolutely. it can have such a negative impact on people's lives. And I think too, when it comes to assessing your relationship with alcohol specifically, it's a question of is it negatively impacting an area of my life, not oh, well, it's only impacting one area of my life negatively or, or 10 areas, so now I need to do something about it, right? Like, it, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. if it, it's like if there's totally. some negative impact that this substance is having, that that sh- that can be, I don't want to say should, but it can be reason yeah. enough to go, I'm going to reassess my relationship with alcohol and see what happens when I take it all, take it out of the picture and then I know for a fact when I was looking at sobriety, I was like, oh, my God, I don't know how to do life without a drink. So for you, you go to rehab. How do you redesign your life without drugs and alcohol when the whole design for you was drugs and alcohol? Because that's a huge turnaround. Yeah, I think that's when when the work really started, you know, because because my health was in such jeopardy, like rehab was – was literally like saving me from becoming really, really physically unwell and maybe, you know, potentially even die. Mm. But the real recovery journey starts when you're back in the real world, right? And it's like you face into emotions and you face into guilt and shame and all of those things when you have a moment of sobriety. Mm. And that's one thing to work through. And I felt I felt blessed that I was in a safe environment when I was working through some of the things that I'd done and, you know, truly understanding the um the impact that it had on my loved ones and stuff like that so that was good but when I came back to England and left rehab that was that was tough man Mm. and um you know almost your term of white knuckling it almost felt some days felt like that you know Mm. because I was like I was 21 when I got clean and whilst my closest friendship group that used heavily with me whilst they were either some of them were still out doing it some of them had stopped um my wider friendship group were just warming up to partying hard, right? We were we were yeah. 21. Like everyone was warming up to using drugs and warming up to going out partying. And so I'd come back and and the party was really just getting started. And so 
it was a really tough time, man. And, you know, like the first first six months to a year of being in the real world, like I was just exceptionally vulnerable. Mm. And I I threw myself into um I threw myself into going to AA and CA meetings. You know, I went to Cocaine Anonymous meetings. And do you know what I actually did? I I um I I just constructed like incredibly strong boundaries in my life where I just fundamentally put like this journey of recovery in front of everything. If friends wanted me to see them, if I was remotely uncomfortable going even to a barbecue where there was no alcohol because I felt social pressure and social awkwardness, mm. you know, I was living in a I was living in a new skin, man. Like my my life before that was like I was the hammered guy in the corner getting the party started. Wow. And um and then you're like this. I felt at the time I was like a shell of a human, right? I came out, I looked better. Um, you know, I had a better color to my skin. My skin had cleared up. I was like, you know, I didn't look like I was really unwell. But, you know, internally, the challenge of that, you know, the challenge of just being in those social environments was tough. So I threw myself into meetings. I found a, I found a really, really interesting guy that had six years clean that went to one of the meetings that just had a twinkle in his eye when I spoke to him he inspired me he gave me hope um you know like and I arranged to meet him for coffees we built a sort of friendship group in the CA meetings and I I immersed myself in that I started cooking for these guys and built like a little mini community that was safe with all these guys going through a similar thing and it wasn't that I neglected my core friendship group that I had I just limited my exposure to people that were still in a lifestyle that had so many connotations of using to me. And I sort of gradually reintroduced people as I felt I was ready. But I suppose, you know, like to, to your point, right. Of, um, of, of whether people know um, whether they have a problem. I think denial is so deep rooted within us. When I went to treatment, it took me six weeks to understand the severity of my addiction and, my counsellor Oliver took me through a, a journey and he he tested me and I failed. I, I did six weeks worth of work in rehab when I went there. And he walked up to me one day and said, Tom, I've arranged for your girlfriend and your parents to come and see you. You've done an amazing job of treatment. And I was like smiling and happy. And I was like, thanks, Oliver. That's amazing. And he took my life story that I'd spent six weeks writing and ripped it up in front of me. And I was like, I just spent six weeks writing it. What? And he just said... He just said, um, he said to, he turned around to me and said, you're now on communication ban. You're not allowed to speak to anyone. Um, your parents now aren't going to come. And all I'd said was thank you. Right. And I was like, what, what the hell's just happened? happened? So he put me on, he put me on communication ban for 10 days. I wasn't allowed to speak to any other residents in the treatment center. I wasn't allowed to speak to counselors. And then we used to have these groups, these, these group settings in the gardens, like 90 of us sit in a circle. Yeah. One day he walked down to the group and he put an envelope on my lap. This was like 10 days later. And he said, read this to the group. And it was, um, it was a sort of step-by-step account from my mum, dad and girlfriend of what it was like living with me through my addiction. And he'd asked me to read it to the group. And, um, you know, it sort of hit home, you know, like, I'm not going to share the contents of the letters, but it was, it was, you know, it was, it was like one of the most severe wake up calls for me. And I read it and I was in floods of tears reading my mum's and my girlfriend's and my dad's account of what it was like to be around me for the eight years of my using. And then he walked up to me after the group and he said, 
He said no one that understood the severity of their illness or addiction would be happy and excited to see their girlfriend and their parents. They would be anxious in anticipation. They would have guilt and shame oh, and all of that wow. stuff. He's like, you had yeah, he said to me, you like, you had no idea how deep rooted your denial is. Oh, and he's good. You know how he's good. Yeah, he was sick, man. That's... He changed my life. He was sick. Because I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, why are you ripping up the yeah. letter? But of course, the understanding of what you hadn't understood yet hadn't hadn't even I know. And scratched it was like the that... surface. Wow. And it was like that day, that day it was like, that was the day that I was, I remember looking into Oliver's eyes and he changed my life in that moment, just doing mm. that. And the nature of how he made me share that information with a wider group wow. for the first time of me ever hearing it. And, you know, like... And it changed my life. And I remember that was the day that I surrendered to addiction. And I was like, I'm going all in. I'm going to make this work. And that was the day that I knew that my life would change. That's amazing. And I love what you said too before, Tom. I just want to sort of circle back to you prioritizing your sobriety ahead of what people might think. Like when, you know, when you're back in the real world and the real work starts, like you putting those hard boundaries down and making your recovery the number one most important thing is safeguarding your sobriety. And I think that's such a great inspirational key for people who are umming and ahhing or not really sure. It's like, no, like go balls to the wall with it. Go all in. If you're totally, gonna if man. you're gonna do this sobriety thing, like we know what drinking looks like, okay? We, if you if you're stuck yeah. in that rut and it's become part of your life and it's not working out for you, you know what it looks like. So if you're gonna do the sobriety bit, do it so full out to see what it looks like on you as a person and what it feels like inside your body as a person. And that's the that is just such a key for people to be so um like hardcore about their sobriety i think that that's a really great way of going about it do you know what do you know what maz like you learn you really quickly learn who your fucking friends are i came out of treatment and and i would like go and reintroduce myself to to friends like sometimes in the pub because i didn't want my i didn't want to feel I sort of put myself in quite vulnerable positions. Sometimes I protected my recovery, but I would like, I was determined at 21 not to be the guy that couldn't go near a bar, not to be the mm. guy. It's like live in England, live in the real world, right? Yeah. There is alcohol everywhere you go. It, I'm not going to be the guy that can't, can't look at a bar without yeah. needing to have a drink. I needed to readapt myself. Maybe I did it a touch early, but you know, some of my friends are exceptionally supportive. And some of my friends would be like, drink a fucking shot of tequila you're so boring now you're sober you know yes, and I've quite, heard and, that before. and it was just <laughs> and and it was like it was so easy it was so easy just to cut them you know my yeah. friends that said that i've literally that was 15 years ago that happened and i've not not ever seen them socially again i just cut yeah. them like gone you're not my friend yeah. and i think that was that was also a really that was really useful for me to like truly see people that didn't give a shit about what I've been through, man. And you know, you know, you think that you've got some of these guys that I was, I was seeing, they were like what I would have classified as a, like as a brother to me, right. Mm. Before I'd gone into treatment, like we Mm. went, it was like ride or die. Right. And then you come out and I just been through one of the most insane processes of my life. I nearly died before I went in and they're like trying to get me to drink. And I'm like, see ya, Hang fuck on. you. Yeah, this gone. is not, you know, yeah. like, that's not, that's later. not helpful. <laughs> so, and then you, and then you like the, the core demographic of friends that, 
just will be there will not drink around you will like embrace you will call you when you're when you're hurting and you know and like quite quickly i i i delivered a core friendship group that were just like so supportive and embraced mm. everything that i was doing and that was life-changing for me as well like having those guys around me that's amazing and that i think is that self-care bit that is mirrored back to you when you start when out, i think out of the grip of you know, alcohol use disorder or addiction, you love yourself for you and that can be mirrored back. When you love yourself first, then other people can love the shit out of you too. But I think when you're in the groups of using, you don't, you can't love yourself because you don't know who you are and so it can't get mirrored back at you and that's that whole, like that beautiful gift. It's like one of those invisible gifts that sobriety gives you as well that you can't really articulate until you're sitting in the chair going, oh, my God. Like my friends are freaking amazing and they love me for who I am because I love me because I know who yeah. I am, you know. So how do we get hundred percent? How do we get to pizza ovens? What because that's a <laughs> it's a really big part of your story. <laughs> and it's like, hang on, we've just had this like epic chat about you and rehab and 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 it the fact that you're here and you're well is a small miracle, it sounds like. Um, And the story doesn't just stop there. There's like this whole other iteration where you have like brought so much joy to people because you found this like additional purpose. Yeah, it was it was part of the journey. I think it was like if you come into sobriety, right, for, for me anyway, there's like a huge element of your life that is a focus. Let's say you know, 70% of your life revolves around drinking, partying, going out, you lose that 70%. It's like, what is there that is productive to replace with that? And, and I suppose for me, like, I'm such a sociable person. I love seeing friends. I love socializing and like alcohol delivered that to my life. Right. And like taking it away and delivering this level of like vulnerability in those situations, it was really difficult to, to write, to try and reintegrate socially in the very beginning. Mm. And so I, I literally started cooking for my friends and hosting sort of dinner parties and we would cook like great food. And, um, and one evening we made pizzas in our conventional oven and everyone topped their own pizzas and I cooked them. Love it. And, um, and they were great, but it was just like, they were a bit soggy and not very crispy. And I was just like, oh, it would be so cool to build a pizza oven in the garden. And, um, and you've got the time to do it. E- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was sort of, I was, yeah, I was doing, I was doing like basic laboring work. And um, I literally like after the pizza session the next morning, I'd spent, hour or two researching how to build a pizza oven I started digging foundations (laughs) in the garden the next morning and do you know what was really magical for my journey was the fact that it completely changed my social dynamic it was we lit the oven and you build a fire and you cook food next to it and there was there was something magical that I found infatuating with that process anyway it was sort of like primal it was like building a fire the sensory elements of nature just being in the garden surrounded by like flavors smoke tastes seeing food cook it sort of took me away from reality mm. you know when you sort of look into a fire you can get lost staring at a fire for an hour totally. if you sit around a campfire and that was there was something spiritual about it that took me away from some of the challenges that I was facing in my recovery and it allowed me to zone out and almost have like a spiritual moment with a product in the garden and that was like part of the magic with it but then what happened next really changed everything it was like my friend, my sort of wider friendship group that was still coming around every now and then. I, I was 
fiercely protective of telling them that they could have beers around me because I didn't want to be socially isolated. But actually, internally, the level of vulnerability around that was was quite high. And so mm. whilst whilst my boundaries were intact in certain places, I almost put additional pressure on myself to have a sort of normal existence, right? Because I was mm. so scared of of being, you know, ostracized for being this sober guy at 21. And the most amazing thing happened, like the oven just captured people because you rolled a pizza out, cooked it next to a fire in 60 seconds. It cooked so quickly. Everyone was fighting for a turn on the oven and fighting to make <laughs> their pizza. So they would like customize their own pizza. They would share their level of creativity in it. They would launch it into an, into an oven, cook it next to a fire. And then it would come out a minute later and they would have this creation that they were like proud of. So and, cool. and what happened was, was it was almost like, wood-fired intervention um it was you know like two 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 weeks into using the oven everyone just stopped bringing beers and started bringing toppings and it was like the oven captured everyone and it was like the need for people drinking just died without me saying a thing and it was like this gift that was given to me and um that's why it was so poignant for me it resonated with me it gave me a new social life that was you know, that I had complete security around, uh, there wasn't a level of vulnerability in it. It gave me purpose. I love to cook. I was experimenting with the oven and then quite quickly realized that actually not only the social dynamic changed, and even for someone that wasn't an addict to have that sort of entrenched social dynamic bought into their garden, you know, with grills and barbecues, you generally get one person that's stuck cooking burgers and sausages while everyone else yes. is socializing. It's the dad. This was a completely new, <laughs> s- yeah, it's the dad. It's usually the dad job. No, yeah. one gives, no one gives a shit to help dad. They just <laughs> want to know when the burgers are done. That's right. <laughs> and, um, and this was, this just changed it. Everyone got involved. Mm. And so it was, it, there was something really, really like fascinating about the community that a wood fired oven, like the speed of things cooking and people being able to customize their food. It, it just changed it. And so I knew that there was an opportunity for us to build products that were more accessible, um, that we could share this, this, you know, this journey of wood fired cooking with more people. And that's where the business started. I love it because you build a community and we're hardwired for connection. And I think it, if there's going to be more vehicles like this to get people to get together without drinking, that's going to normalise not drinking. Because what we do, because we're hardwired for connection, we go to bars, we sit around and we all drink alcohol. And that's, that is just traditionally how our Western world is set up. That's the culture that we live yeah. in and that's the normal behaviour. So, you know, the outliers and the rebels are the ones sitting in the corner drinking soda water with their pants on, Right. But with more vehicles <laughs> like this, it normalizes community without the alcohol. It, and like you said, it was it sounds like it was a really natural shift. You didn't have to like tell everyone, hey, you know, maybe don't bring the beers around. It just naturally happened that way, which is so cool. Yeah. Because I think that it it's somehow you've created something that is so tangible and ticks that community hardwire connection box that we as humans have an innate desire for without meaning yeah. to. And that's why it's so special. I think that's why people would have been drawn to it. And that's why this story is yeah. so powerful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it, it definitely is that. And, it, you know, in the first instance, it changed my life and gave me security in a time when I was vulnerable. And now, now we've sort of built products that are accessible to allow the world to to experience that firsthand. I feel like truly blessed to be part of that and be the 
be the driving force behind building those products to share it with the world. It's been it's been a really exciting journey for me. It's so cool. It's such a great little part of your story, and um, and I feel like you know, like the sobriety bit is it's not like a new part of your story, but this is like that added element. So I always say to people, yeah. you know, finding your identity after you've stopped drinking is that's really challenging. Like I definitely struggled with it because yeah. I was like, I was the chick that could keep up with the boys. So what yeah. happens when you don't drink alcohol anymore, but you still need the respect of the boys club in the media world, you know, and, but finding yeah. your identity, whatever that is, there's no limit on it and there's no rules around it. It's your purpose and your identity. And when you can find that, that is just the beautiful gift that sobriety gives you that is now the rest of this story that you're writing. And I'm excited to keep following you along, Tom, because it's really cool what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, it really is. And I, I think, you know, finding purpose in a, in a life of sobriety is really interesting, whether it be, you know, you start running, you start gymming, something that feels like it can positively impact your life. For me, I found business fascinating because it was, it was almost like everything that was, exciting about um like debaucherous past when it was good before it got really really bad yeah you know like that excitement of going out and getting drunk and having a party with your mates and all of that stuff you know for me like building a business and and being in control of my destiny and building something that could change the way that I live was was fascinating and it gave me purpose and drive so you know finding something to to really like grab onto was it was super beneficial for me it's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And and I really do, like, honestly, truly value you sharing a part of your story that you've not shared before. That That's really special. And I, um, I really treasure that. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, pleasure. It's really nice to have been here. Thanks for listening to Last Drinks Podcast. If you love this podcast, then subscribe. For more inspiration and to reach out, you can follow us on Instagram at lastdrinkspod. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 